Hello, and welcome to another edition of Sitcom Club. Joining myself, Mooncap, this week is your old pal Ocho. Hello. How you doing? Adequately. You've never asked me that before, have you? I think I usually do. Don't and surprise me like that. You, you go, oh, meh. I'm know. on edge because of today's topic. I'm not sure we can take it the full mile. It's a hot topic. and it's But it has hot, to be done. Not a hot topic remotely, but it's one that we have done unwittingly in previous shows and this time we thought we're going to do it in long form. Every once in a while we come up with some flight of fancy, we say ah, character A has similarities with character B from different sitcom, different era, perhaps the same actor, perhaps not, and then we'll go off on a wee tangent. And so we thought that we would explore for this particular edition of the sitcom club the sitcom universe, I suppose you call it. Is that a fair title, do you think? Yes, it's a map of the sitcom universe. We should look at connections and barriers as well, things that can't happen in the same place, and just the laws of their physics. I don't want you to be offended in any way by this next comment, but I have noticed that on occasion when I come out with some weird bit of whimsy or whatever it may be, you may come back and say, no, no, that's absurd because of this. And you probably throw like reasons and logic and all manner of annoying things like that in my direction. So I felt that in order to have a fair crack of the whip for both of us, I felt that we needed to have an adjudicator on hand throughout this edition. Like Kenneth Kendall in Treasure Hunt. Did he adjudicate or did he just help? Well, I think he was... <laughs> Wincy Willis, the adjudicator. Yeah, I would say so. Or... What's his name? Your man from the Archers in Undermanning. Wasn't that his role? Don't mention Undermanning again. It's, no, it's not. It's, it's not like Spats. It's okay. We can we can mention it. I'm getting opening titles flashbacks. Okay. Well, I'm going to have play... to think about the Trevor Baker All Weather Show just to recover. <laughs> well, in the role of Brian Aldridge slash Charles Collingwood today, we have the author of the very fine sitcom blog, Sitcom Lovers Corner, G Baker. Hello. I'm glad that for once we're going to have... What's the word? Is it parity? Is that the word? Fairness is what I'm getting at. Okay. Yes. So Ocho cannot defeat me with his this, Radio this Times Guide to Comedy. Is, or You're complaining just because I like throw something back to you. Well, yeah, exactly. It's I mean, like tennis. You can't just say, oh, hey, he hit the ball back to me. That's <laughs> not fair. Hey, if I was playing at Wimbledon, that's exactly what I would say to the umpire. Okay, there are certain political movements where people say, oh, they put up their own candidate. How dare they? That's against everything this country stands for. <laughs> certain political movements, I thought there was all of them. Well, that's true. But hey, a little bit of politics, satire. There you go. Okay, so what are we all about today? What are we doing? We're looking at how sitcom characters in the sitcom universe could have interacted with one another. We're also going to define what the sitcom universe is. You alluded to it there, Ocho, just now about there are certain laws that can't be broken. Now, one of them that we talked about off air was that, for example, shows which are adaptations of existing shows, that those two universities cannot meet. So we're not going to, unfortunately, as much as I would like to, we're not going to have a meeting between George and Stanley Roper. They'd just be disturbed, wouldn't they? Yes, they would. They and, that's, notes. and that's why I want them to meet. Or even worse, Stanley Roper goes to the UK and watches George and Mildred. <laughs> that would be interesting. Helen 
Everything that's happening to us happens here, and it happened first on the <laughs> on George and Mildred. <laughs> well, I'd like to, G. We'll ask for your point of view on this. Who do you think has got the worst deal? Helen Roper stuck with Stanley, or Mildred Roper stuck with? George. Okay, I know it's Mildred, but yeah. for argument's sake, is there is there any is there anything you could say which is in any way a redeeming quality about George Roper's character? Do you know I'm stuck for ideas? <laughs> okay, this he's not usually happen. He's not Jack and on the buses, which we've already no. established. Now hang on, now hang on a second because no, no, hang on because we've got breaking news uh, on the screen here. Ocho, you made a statement to me the other day which I'm not going to ask you to back up. Hodges in Dad's Army is a psychopath. <laughs> well, I don't disagree with you His relentless there. glee at the suffering of others. He actually states that the, the Second World War is the best thing to ever happen to him. He auctions oranges for charity that he knows are inedible. I think I'm with you on that one. And also withdraws one from sale so that Mannering won't get one. He's a monster. I don't disagree with you on any of that, but the statement that you made to me was that he is a worse person than Jack. And I just... He's more active, I think. I think he's he's more active about his evil. Gee, we are going to ask you to adjudicate here in just a second, okay? Because this is going to be the first disagreement of the night. (laughs) But, okay, I understand what you're saying, but can I reiterate the, the bare facts about Jack? Let's consider a few bits and pieces, and then let's see how he compares to Hodges. Okay, so Jack is someone who, not only is he deeply unpleasant in the way that he conducts himself, and obviously only ever has one thing on his mind, but also he dishes it out, but he can't take it. Take it, it. yeah. Exactly. When Blakey will make reference to Jack's teeth, for example, Jack takes it personally, gets offended, that the smile drops from his face. Also, to come up with a few for instances, when Stan is defending the canteen lady from the sack, Jack, as union shop steward, basically leaves him to it, leaves him high and dry, doesn't defend him, just walks away from his responsibilities. When the possibility of promotion and becoming Blakey's right-hand man comes up, not only does Jack jump at the opportunity, but then grasses in Stan for all of his transgressions over the years, tells him, oh, this is where he sneaks in when he's coming late into the depot, and here's a few other things that he gets up to and all this kind of stuff. Worst of all, when Stan is pursuing one of the new bus drivers, because of course they bring in women bus drivers in the first film, He's pursuing Pat Ashton. He gets a knock on the door. There is Jack, along with all the other union reps, saying, if she doesn't leave your house right now, we're going to beat you up. And then turns out later on that Jack's having it away with herself. And, I mean, honestly, do you really... Yeah, exactly. Now, do you really think that Hodges is that bad, Ocho? I've got to put it back to yourself. The only time you see Hodges smiling and laughing is when somebody else is suffering. That is true. I'm not saying Jack's a nice guy, but I'm pretty sure Jack occasionally enjoys his own success. Hodges really only seems to enjoy the failure of others. Yeah, that's true. 
But is Hodges as ARP warden, is he not serving a useful purpose in society at but this he states difficult time? He's enjoying the war. He doesn't want it to end. I think that's the cover of it, isn't it? He uses his status as a cover to get away with. I'm arguing against myself now, but I actually <laughs> did reply to yourself, Ocho, that Hodges would have hated VE Day. He'd be the only person who wasn't smiling that night. I I still have my suspicions that had things gone that way, Hodges would have collaborated. <laughs> okay, G, the, the choice is yours as adjudicator. All I would suggest would be to make your decision easier, I would suggest picturing a meeting between Jack and Hodges. Right. And thinking, who do you think would outwit the other first? Oh, good question. I'm leaning towards Hodges, actually. I think. I don't know. Cause... I think Hodges, it wouldn't get as far as wits. Hodges would probably Maybe just not. go for violence. Violence and authority. <laughs> I definitely think they'd both want the first laugh. I don't know. Because they're kind of different nastiness, if you like. I think Hodges. Okay, Hodges it is. Well, Ocho, ball's in your court. So now I'm going to ask you if you could, before we start sort of looking at different potential meetings and so on, could you elaborate a bit more on the laws of the sitcom universe as you see them? One thing we know is that the sitcom universe has a much smaller gene pool. Lots of people look like lots of other people without comment. Like the different Malcolms in Terry... Well, actually, are we, are we going to say that the different Malcolms in Terry and June are three separate people who all coincidentally have the same first name, second name, and a wife with the same name? Well, actually, no. I would like to suggest that they are the same person, but perhaps via some bizarre goings-on akin to a children's film foundation plot they have managed to find the secret of eternal youth and in fact they get younger as eternal middle goes age on. well no because you start with Terence Alexander you move to Tim Barrett you move to John Quayle they're getting younger as the nine years goes on I see so we're supposed to take it that John Quayle looks like a young Tim Barrett well I mean he <laughs> but could it, have... doesn't one of the other Malcolms turn up later well, no, okay, yeah, well, that's where things get confused because, yes, after Tim Barrett's left the series, he does turn up as a completely different character in one episode. And as far as I recall, although I'd need to see it again, I don't think that this gets any kind of comment. I don't think. And that's Rachel because says, that's because in their world, this is perfectly normal. You are always meeting people who look alike. I think they've got a smaller population on sitcom world. So, like, for example, where last series of Man About the House when Chrissy meets Robin's brother, she doesn't think hang on a second, that's that fellow that I went out with three years ago who turned out to be married and tried to hide it from me. Precisely, and then when the Ropers move to Hampton Wick and they meet Geoffrey Fourmile, there's nothing to be said about the fact that he looks like two other people. Yeah. It's it's just perfectly normal to them. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to take that as red then. So we're not we're not just going to say as I, I think to be fair. And I don't know who I'm being fair to, but to myself, to be fair to myself, I think that initially when we had this idea, I was looking at it from the point of view of Granville. Oh, he looks a little bit like this market trader in Peckham. I wonder if they ever met and that kind of thing. So we're just we're going to take that as red. Are we? We're going to take it that. 
a lot of people look like other people, basically. Yes. But that's not to stop us from then potentially coming up with connections. No, exactly. If there's a decent connection, it could work. I would like to throw out such a potential connection. Now, we're all fans here. I think I can speak for all of us that we're all huge fans of the Brian Cook series Trippers Day with Leonard <laughs> what? With Leonard Roster as Norman Tripper, the manager of the Superfair supermarket. And let's face it, it's a classic. If you haven't got it, it's out on DVD. Get it. I am going on the basis of Norman Tripper being portrayed by Leonard Roster being roughly the same age as Leonard Roster. So that would mean that Norman Tripper was born in 1926. Now, in Tripper's day, he is not married, and I don't recall any reference to a wife or an ex-wife. He is being pursued by Pat Ashton's character, we'll come to her in a moment. And yet I'm sort of thinking, hmm, born 1926. Now, it is just possible, therefore, that perhaps he may have had prior relationship, perhaps have had a son some years previously and of course his son would be called Tripper Jack Tripper for example who then went off to live in the United States and then featured of course in the popular Freeze Company But that then puts a wall then between Tripper's Day and Man About the House These can't happen in the same universe It's like if you read a lot of DC comics, you know, they have Earth 1, Earth 2 What's the problem for there being a wall? Because I'm not these... saying it's a problem. I'm just saying, okay, that's it. That's 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 one boundary we have. We have to decide what. So, so Tripper's Day is is actually part of the American sitcom universe, where they have Sanford and Son and all those many other fine. But why is it? Why is it? Why that is it? I can't remember the name <laughs> of. But why is it part of the American ecosystem? Because it's a British sitcom, so. Now hang on, this is interesting. So Norman's son did, Jack has gone off to taken, live in gone off to live in America. Well, okay, let's say that Norman Tripper back in the day met an American lady and they, you know, had a son, Jack, and then perhaps she's gone back off to live in America. Taking Jack with her. And given given Jack the surname, or has Jack do you think later had something of a an epiphany and taken his father's surname? Well, no, if if they were married originally and oh, she so kept okay, her married so, name. Right, I, then, yeah. He's not a dirty old yeah. goose, fine. <laughs> <laughs> However, where it starts to get complicated is if Jack then, for example, as I'm sure many people on the, the US-Canadian border will do, if he ever crossed the border one afternoon on a shopping trip and happened to step into Howard Bannister's Cobb supermarket, which of course is, check it out. We can't, then can he? Don Adams. So that's, what, why can't he can rules. do it? Well, is it? Because what we're actually saying here is that a character from an unrelated sitcom has a link between two sitcoms which have a relationship with each other because they're an adaptation of one another. But Jack Tripper doesn't feature an isle of them, so why can't he go into Superfair and then go into Cobbs later on? Because he'd be going somewhere where the, the exact same things that happened to his father are happening to somebody else in Canada. It's, it's yeah, disturbing. Just, it's just deja vu. I mean, he's only a customer there. He's only going to be in there, what, half an hour? So how much of this I thought this was the rules. Any see? shows where events are duplicated are different universes. I thought yeah. this was part of our map. <laughs> so we're going to put... I'm so not saying really, that... Really, there's, there's Earth Tripper's Day and there's Earth Check It Out. 
Like if I'd said, and if they ever meet, it would have to be a massive crossover across all television channels. Possibly, if one year they just decided, look, we're not going to do the Olympics this year, changed our (laughs) minds, and all the TV companies are going, what are we going to show instead? Right, okay, we're just going to have to have crisis across the sitcoms, and that will fill all those Olympic slots we had left open. That's why TV should have done two years ago. So they're just putting on repeats of Midsummer and Miss Marple and what have you. That's what they should Definitely. have done. Yeah. yeah. But no, I still, I don't see the problem here because it's not like if, if I'd said Norman Tripper goes over to Canada on a fact-finding mission. But you're and- seeing that they're the same, they're living in the same world. That, that Jack, Jack is, is, the, <laughs> is the link here. And apparently everything that happened to his father also happened to somebody else. Exactly the same. Using some of the same words. <laughs> But hang on, Jack hasn't actually been. He's never been to Superfair. That's not how the universe works. <laughs> okay, gee, I think that this. You didn't say is- this. Oh, this it, it, I thought we were trying to draw draw our map. You can't just like put two things on top of each other and say, "Well, they they're separated by." <laughs> okay, pixie gee, dust. Gonna have to uh, gonna have to go over to you yourself for adjudication here. Okay. I think given the adv- uh, the arguments that you've both said, I think that could possibly work if he's only in there for a limited amount of time to stop everything repeating itself, maybe. It's just that if if Norman Tripper and Jack Tripper and Mr... What's, what's the character's name and check it out? Uh, Howard Bannister. There's then that possibility that Norman Tripper might end up in Bannister's store and the universe would explode. But that's too much. Is that much what you want a... to happen? That's true. Well, I don't know. You want, to turn, you want to turn on to watch George and Mildred just get white noise and snow because... I thought we established that if anything like that was going to happen, we are going to get Ealing comedies in the we're separate. We're separating them into different dimensions, you see. And I don't think that when Jack Tripper left the UK and went to the US, he passed through a dimensional portal. <laughs> <laughs> why? Why should... Norman Tripper's son going into a supermarket in Canada caused Norman Tripper to then go to that supermarket. It, because it's happening in Norman Tripper's world. We're seeing that Jack Jack and Norman live in the same world. And then you're seeing that somebody whose experiences reproduce Norman's also lives in that world. To conclude, it's sinister. All I'm gonna say all I'm gonna say about this, if we're gonna talk about Parallel universe. I thought this was part and... of the fun. Well, this is part of the fun. We just got to work out who's where. Because, for instance, like Love Thy Neighbor is fictional in Man About the House. No, no, okay, well, all I'm going to say, if, if we're going to bring in the possibility of parallel universes and knocking two dimensions into one and all that kind of stuff, all I'll say is that Pat Ashton's character who pursues Norman Tripper throughout, her name is Hilda Rimmer. Ah. Okay. So, you know, it is possible. I'm going to say parallel universes are not a possibility. They're a necessity. <laughs> okay, so yeah, let's take the example of Love Thy Neighbor. So yeah, it's... So, it's, so Earth Tripper and Earth Bannister, that's that's what we'll call them because that's what we've decided. Okay. For everything we have to... For every single one of these, we have to work out where White's Watchdogs fits in. I think in this case it doesn't. So, okay, give the example then of Love Thy Neighbor. So in it's is it Man About the House, the movie, and George meets... Jack Smithers and Rudolph Walker and starts quoting Love Thy Neighbour and they both get offended saying that's just a TV show it's not to me this means that George cannot meet the real characters now I have a whole weird theory hinging on the fact that Dad's Army is fictional in 
Goodnight Sweetheart. Okay? Gary Sparrow. Spoilers, but he we know he can change history. And right at the end, he does change history in a significant way. Now, I'm going to say that in Gary Sparrow's universe, at the beginning, when we first see him go down that alleyway, he's actually living in the world where that change didn't happen. Should should we tear aside the spoiler here and I think and reveal what happens in the this, last... For the sake of this one episode, yes. If you don't want to know how Goodnight Sweetheart ends, you're going to have to stop listening at this point and then go off and watch and then come back. At the beginning of Goodnight Sweetheart, Gary Sparrow is living in a world where Clement Attlee was assassinated. And the u- that is heading towards the world we see ten years later. Or nine years later. When did Goodnight Sweetheart start? Uh, 93 until 99. 90, also, right, six years later. Snakes and ladders. That is where <laughs> Gary's world is headed. And if he hadn't interacted, then, then snakes and ladders would have come to pass. He prevents that happening. Phew, thank God for that. And other things, he, but I, th- I think we see things slowly changing in the sitcom universe. You, did you ever watch The Creatives? No. No, I've not. Ah, series one is very fairly conventional and jolly and series two tries to be more slick and dark and more spiteful i'm thinking that series two happens in basically when gary changes history series two of the creatives doesn't happen and he actually that that kind of gentler world in series one is what he brings about the other thing of course gary prevents dad's army being made as a tv show in his universe because he meets a couple of bankers who look like wilson and mannering but I'm going to say that George Mannering was a real person and he 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 died before 1968 because it was a harsher universe because Gary hadn't changed history. And possibly Pike pitched the idea. It's a, cr- it's a crueler place. <laughs> now, I, I'm going to say... He wasn't called Pike, was he, the T-boy? No, he was called Major. That's right. So be- because Gary's one action makes the world a slightly kinder, slightly gentler place, Mannering gets to live longer, nobody would dream of making a show portraying him as a buffoon. There's no dad's <laughs> army in Gary's universe by the end. That's interesting. So we, we not only have separate universes, now we have separate timelines. <laughs> oh, we've complicated does this it. Explain, does this explain when he meets his son, played by Ian Lavender, at no point does he think, oh, that fella reminds me of that stupid boy from that sitcom. He never says that. Never comes up, and this is much, much later in the series. So we're establishing that by was it series five or thereabouts that by that point history has been changed to the effect that Dad's Army is no longer an entity. Yes, that's definitely what I mean. And maybe so. So right, we're saying, okay. We're saying that maybe there are three big shifts. There's the cruel universe that Gary starts in. He shifts it, makes it a little gentler, and then by the end, he makes it. Our universe, which is apparently, though you wouldn't know it, gentler and kinder than it could have been. I'm going to say that, right, <laughs> every time he changes something, he changes the development of Malcolm in Terry and June. <laughs> We're actually watching the timeline shift before our very eyes. <laughs> I like this, which means that the rocket launcher I'm about to fire into this theory is all the more cruel. Because I actually, I do like this as an idea. All I'd say is that I would say that John Quayle actually is slightly less pleasant a Malcolm than Terence Alexander. So that puts okay. the theory slightly out of kilter, but not too much. However, let's just go back to something you said a minute ago. 
1993 in which Gary Sparrow exists is one where Clement Attlee was assassinated before he became Prime Minister. Yes? Early on, I think it might be episode 2G, you'll remember this, Gary actually confesses to Yvonne what's happened, the fact that he's gone back and so on and so on, been in the pub, and Yvonne's reaction is good mental health services are very difficult to get hold of in the national health. So where did the national health come from then if Clement Attlee was assassinated? Ah. From from some sort of One Nation conservative which made something close but not quite. So what you're saying is that... Something that was ramshackle enough to let George Mannering die before 1968. But what we're actually saying then is that the end... If you're still listening by this point and you haven't heard the end of Goodnight Sweetheart, stop listening to the podcast and go watch it and then come back so you haven't got to keep on forwarding for 60 seconds. So are we saying then that what was going to happen under Clement Attlee was going to happen anyway? So then why at the end of it has he then had to save Clement Attlee? Attlee, yeah, good question. Well, it's the grandfather paradox, isn't it? What about the granddad paradox with Clive <laughs> The granddad paradox is you watched it even though you didn't find it particularly funny. <laughs> okay, so he's saying Oh, well, the there end- you go. There's another ex- <laughs> example. No, that's not an example. No, just going to say that maybe the horrible, gloopy, sentimental song is one universe. In one universe, Charlie Quick is a sad old man who just talks about the past. <laughs> that's, the, that's the single... <laughs> From the seventies, called Granddad. In another, he's just a silly caretaker, but he's good and active and spry. I don't know where that idea goes. It doesn't go anywhere. Right, I can't let you off the hook with this. Gee, we need to have some definitive stance on this. So, are we going to go along with this theory? I've actually forgotten what the theory is. What is your theory about good night? <laughs> yeah. That Kerry Sparrow prevents snakes and ladders happening, which you should like. He prevents the second series of The Creatives happening. (laughs) And he prevents Dad's Army being made into a television show in his universe. And he makes Malcolm a nicer person. Or or worse. We're not saying that everything has to be kinder and gentler. Maybe the more acquisitive, snobbish Malcolm found that the post-Gary Sparrowed universe wasn't quite the same place he could get his, his finger holes into and is therefore more aggressive. Okay. I think if we're basing this on... Everything that he's done has changed history. So the Attlee thing, I think it wouldn't work if obviously Attlee had been assassinated with the NHS argument that Mooncat made, if that's happened before, obviously, the end of Goodnight Sweetheart. So I don't think well, that could both work. Both parties, there was the post-war consensus. What am I th- both parties agreed that the Beveridge Report had some good ideas. So I'm saying it's it's just a weaker, more ramshackle National Health Service that comes about. And we can see because mental health services are hard to get hold of. You are making rather a good argument. <laughs> I'm scaring myself. <laughs> <laughs> and I do like your theory that Dad's Army wouldn't have obviously been a TV show because we had the real Dad's Army that Gary saw in the bank. So I can kind of see it. I think, yeah, maybe... I think it okay, could you know work. what? Because it's so ingenious, I'm going to concede this one. 
So, well, yeah. Mooncat, you have to concede it because the magic words prevents snakes and ladders from ever happening. <laughs> Should be enough to get you on side. Yeah, I think that you deliberately chose that because you knew that that was one argument that I wasn't going to be able to oppose. Yeah, okay, I'm for this. This is good. But, okay, I'm intrigued. If we're saying that the changes that Gary Sparrow unwittingly enact have a softening effect on Malcolm. Does Malcolm himself notice this? Is he aware of this? Or is it just something that just happens naturally? Well, no, because it's like what happens to Gary's son. I don't think he's aware of his different self. Yeah. It's, it's not like he comes into Gary's shop and says, yes, I'm I'm leaving the country. I'm quite well off. Which is weird, because I was in a grotty bed set last week, and then it's all pinged away. <laughs> Okay, now can we actually can we can we nail this down? Can we just work out the technicalities of this? Let's use himself as an example there. What if you're in the company of gee, what's Guy Sparrow's son's name? Do we know his Michael. Michael, okay. So if you're in the company of Michael Sparrow at the exact moment when Gary is faffing about in nineteen forty four with that sheet music and making sure that it ends up in his name. If you're in the company of Michael Sparrow right there and then, uh, I don't know, 12, 12 p.m. and 34 seconds, does he just change before your eyes? You just wait. You don't notice you change too. Everything is pinged. Yeah, everything. Uh, yeah, I think. <laughs> your nervous system copes with it. I think that's it. I think everything around must have to change as well, maybe. Oh, I forgot. Uh, this this brings me to my other thing, that why, why does Gary's son not know Gary? Are we to take it that Gary died? Is that explained, G, in the episode? Do we know? Don't know because when he first comes into the shop and he says, "Oh, you look like someone that I recognise," and then he's like, "Oh yeah, it's my dad," but he said he didn't see him that much because he wasn't around. But then later on, when he comes in, he doesn't say that he wasn't around as much. I think I know where Gary went. I think he tired of life with Phoebe and having certain foreknowledge to give him advantages in life. He just vanished for for a while. And took up a new life as a small-time criminal. And he is Freddy the Frog. <laughs> <laughs> and he is the father of Rodney Trotter. Okay. Just want to put that idea out there. It's got a lot going for it. It really has. Because I think that we often joke about if Gary post his shock at the end of the last episode, if he then, perhaps slowly but surely, or perhaps just overnight, just suddenly loses all his moral fibre, just completely dispenses with his scruples and then thinks, right, I'm going to have fun here, then yeah, he could very well turn out. Okay, I don't think that he's going to end up in a 1950s early episode of the Sweeney. I don't think he's going to start doing bank jobs or anything like that. Well, not in that style, not with the turn-off shotgun, but... Yeah, he could be using his advanced knowledge to say, I know that something's going to happen on this date. Say there's going to be some big event that's going to take place because he's got hold of a copy of Tomorrow's Times. And instead of saying, I must warn the authorities about this, like he did with Pearl Harbor, he thinks, that's going to be a fantastic diversion tactic. All the police will be over there, whereas I can then sneak into the National Westminster and have it away. Yeah. Yeah. Because especially as he'd obviously, when he was trying to make some money for when Phoebe was pregnant to um, pay for little Michael's cot and everything, he obviously used his information of races, horse races that had been won 
in mm-hmm. the past and he put money on those horses so he's not afraid to be unmoral I guess <laughs> so yeah he could definitely do that on, so what what happens if if Michael Sparrow finds out he has a half brother that's what should have been in the sport relief special <laughs> <laughs> now hang on a second let me just think about this so Gary Sparrow later on known by his non-diplome Freddy the Frog we know what happens to him because that's been established all the way back in Only Fools and the 87 Christmas special. He, inverted commas, sat on a detonator. So and that was that was mid-1960s. We don't get to that point in Rockin' Chips, but that's implied it's mid-1960s. So does that explain why Michael Sparrow says my father wasn't always around? It could do, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Now, where does Ashley from the two of us fit into this equation? Small gene pools. Ah, shame. <laughs> Otherwise, we're bringing in the piglet files and and butterflies. <laughs> Heidi. <laughs> Hitler's cameraman from the Tomorrow People. <laughs> that way madness lies. Guest star on Kenny Everett at Christmas Show 1982. <laughs> I've got another tie to Only Fools. But well, i tell you what, let Let's hand over to you, Mooncare, because I've been shouting out all these crazy toys. Okay, well, no, I've got this I've got this wild thought. Duty free. Now, David Pierce, we know what he's normally getting up to. And we know why. Duty free. Pardon? He's descended from that well known rake, Squire Haggard. Ah yes, of course. This is true. This is true. Now can well, hang on a second, because if he's descended from Now hey, hang Haggard, on a minute, I wonder if Squire Haggard ever crossed paths with Dick Turpin. <laughs> Sorry, sorry. Let me hand back the torch to you. <laughs> no, I was wondering... this is this is this is why I've I've been doing so well because I can't stop thinking about this stuff. So we're saying David Pierce is descended from Squire Haggard. Now Roderick Haggard is that Squire Haggard's son? It's been a long time since anybody watched Haggard. Let me just check. Hang on a second. Let's just check the uh, chocker block computer. Yes, yes, it is. Okay, right. So Roderick is his son. So are we saying then that Matthew Willows is descended from Roderick Haggard? Why not? Why ever not indeed? So hang on a second then. So that means that Henry Willows is descended from Roderick Haggard. Which means he's related somewhere along the line to David Pierce. And coincidentally, Duty Free and Home to Roost popular sitcoms were both recorded this, at Kirkstall. This is the great <laughs> shame of television. <laughs> comics do it all the dc characters meet all the other dc characters wouldn't it be fantastic if yorkshire television had this proprietorial sense of its own universe and had them all keeping crossing paths right the point i was gonna make about david pierce was there is one particular episode where i think it's is it carlos is threatened with the sack and amy is very keen to prevent this and she's been quite so militant about it and David spots that this is not going down very well. Now, it has been a little while since I saw the episode, but I think that David is supposed to have had some trade union background. And so, whereas Amy's tactics clearly aren't working, David is able to just speak to the other holidaymakers and reason with them and say, look, you know, the waiters have all been at our service all this time. Now, let's do something for them. Let's stand up for them. And joint action, we can get somewhere with this. Now, I'm just sort of thinking that trade union politics, sort of left-wing background, I wonder, do you think that David Pierce 
might ever have encountered or perhaps had links to like a prospective Labour candidate in the mid 1960s, one Nigel Barton. <laughs> oh, we're bringing drama in, are we? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> well, that's taking care of the next six podcasts. <laughs> for part one if we start bringing drama into it we'll never stop okay well before we pass back to yourself Ocho, i want to get a ruling from g okay with regards to the sitcom ecosystem and this is actually this is a really really important ruling g because this is going to have ramifications it's going to have ramifications for so many sitcom actors okay do we include advertisements as part of a character's <laughs> canon. Can you elaborate on that? Yes. For example, and this will be one that you'll appreciate, so I'll give you I'll give you this example first. Say I think this is about one or two years, it's about seventy nine, nineteen eighty thereabouts. We've got a couple who, although they're not referred to by name, look remarkably like Tom and Barbara Good. Okay. Faffing about with Polaroid cameras while decorating Uh, the Christmas tree. Now, here they are. I mean, let's face it, as much as Leslie Ash and Neil Morrissey didn't have the name Debs and Tony in the home base adverts, let's face it, it was them. It was them, Of course it was. So, if we're led to believe that Tom and Barbara, or Richard Briers and Felicity Kendall, are Tom and Barbara in this Polaroid advert, does that mean that about a year or so after the end of The Good Life, they've decided, actually, that he's going to go back to the office because now they've got all their mod cons back again. That could work. What with Jerry being the big boss? Yeah, maybe he's moonlighting a bit. This raises a larger question about Steptoe and Son. I've got that written. I was, I was just going to say that. I've got that written <laughs> down in front of me. Exactly. This is this is the big one. Steptoe and Son, Kenko Coffee advert from 1981, where the Steptoes, not reflected by... Albert's dress sense, which hasn't changed, but otherwise they're absolutely filthy rich. So, what are we saying about this? Are we going to include Arthur Daly's exploits? Although he doesn't go by the name Arthur Daly, but let's face it, it's him. The, was it the Halifax adverts, Ojo? I have no idea. The only adverts I remember with George Cole were for a camera. I can't even remember what type of camera. No, you know, you know the ones where it was basically Arthur Daly and he sings a little rhyme and then says, go and put your money in this bank. Or something like that. I mean, it's not as blatant as that. There is, of course, that textile wall down there. I'm a notorious black marketeer and borderline (laughs) criminal. Take my financial advice. And there's that one where it's Sir Humphrey and Bernard. Is it Nescafe? I've definitely seen one with Paul Eddington, I think. And Derek Folds, but I'm pretty sure he calls him Derek. So that's actually just a view into the interactions between real people. Okay. Mooncat, are we taking it that you're troubled by the implications of this good life commercial? Well, yeah, because what I'm saying... I have a solution for you. If you want to, put that from your mind. Well, what I'm saying is... That, that is the geez. un-Gary Sparrowed version of the goods. <laughs> with a greater acquisitiveness. And whereas the greater social mobility and equality brought in by Gary's actions allows the Steptoes to move up the ladder. So hang on a second. Are you saying that Tom and Barbara? This is a stupid in... idea because you can just apply it. <laughs> just becomes okay. no, a wizard Barbara, did it. Ping. The Tom and Barbara that are portrayed in the Polaroid advert, they are the result of 
Gary Sparrow in 1999 having saved Clement Attlee. Is that right? No, they're the result of him not having done that. Oh, I see. Right. That's okay. the un-Gary Sparrow version. Because what's troubling me is that, gee, if you allow adverts to stand as part of the canon, then what we're effectively saying is that everything that happened in The Good Life was just effectively futile. It happened for like a four-year period, and then he went right back to square one. Yeah, especially after the whole thing where they're burgled and everything, and it's just they think I could give up now, but they don't, and they say that that's not going to stop them. They'll carry on. So, yeah. It ruins it, really. And yet, if we if we allow them through, though, life gets better for the steptoes. So, what do we do? No, I'm saying. No, I'm saying that the, this is the un-Gary Sparrowed version of the goods with their acquisitiveness, and it's the post-Gary Sparrowed version of the steptoes with its greater social mobility. <laughs> <laughs> but but either way, we've we've got to come up with a ruling on this. So, whichever one we do, somebody's going to lose. I flip a coin. <laughs> Who's going to lose? Hang on a minute. Who's going to lose? In the Gary Sparrowed version, the greatest the greater social mobility allows the steptoes to move up. Oh yeah, but the goods get their house trashed, don't they? Yes. Yeah. What we can't have, if we're going to have any kind of rules in this at all, we can't say it's one rule for, for some one, and one yeah. for another. So we've got, got to yeah. have a yeah. So, I mean, I suppose my personal preference is going I to be. I have a different explanation. That Polaroid advert is actually a parallel universe version. Of Martin and Anne Bryce, where Anne Bryce looks like Felicity Kendall. And these are the early days of their marriage when Martin was a bit looser and had more fun. (laughs) Okay. Whether it's the Tripperverse or the Bannisterverse, it's not for me to say because I'd have to pay more attention to what I'm saying. (laughs) All right, well. Okay, what's, what's your preference, G? I mean, I, I suppose you could say that if you... Now, I'm really, I've really lost the plot now. But if if you do one way rather than the other, that means that the Steptoes become millionaires and Tom and Barbara still have their self-sufficiency adventure. Yeah. They're both they're both compatible, is that right? That, that, Does that they're work? They're both part of the same? Whatever. Flip the <laughs> No, if you're gonna, if you're gonna, if you're if you're gonna interject whatever into the proceedings, then I play the game be... for the game's own sake. <laughs> because okay, it's not next... about whether you win or lose; it's about whether you confuse everybody. <laughs> right, well, I am case, really confused. The, the next, the next. Instance this is why you, you should have drawn a map. The Moon next cats. instance you come I up did with, a map. Gonna... Oh, this piss is a bit mad. Right, the next situation that you come up with, I'm gonna interject with. Paul Daniels did it with his magic wand. <laughs> But in the non-Gary Sparrow version of the universe, <laughs> the Halloween Iron Maiden trick really did go wrong. No, hang on. And Which Ghost Watch was real. Who cares? When you say let, let okay, wait, hang on. Let's 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 nail this down. When you say Gary Sparrowed universe, do you mean ninety three or ninety nine? The the version where I don't want to keep exactly. saying this so that so that people can jump forward to a point where they can listen to a non-spoiler. On Gary Sparrowed, Gary Sparrowed never went back in time, never prevented snakes and ladders. Gary Sparrowed, he did go back in time and prevented snakes and ladders happening. And therefore, Paul Daniels is dead as a result of his Iron Maiden trick. In one yes. version and in another version, no. It does seem to me that there are winners and losers in this Gary Sparrow universe. But then you could say it's Paul Daniels' only bloody stupid fault for getting into the Iron Maiden in the first place. <laughs> Nobody forced him in there. And in one of them, Ghost Watch really happened. 
<laughs> oh, hang on, I always thought the Ghostwatch did happen. Are you telling me that was fiction? I switched off just before the end credits, you see. Now, yeah, I think you're right. I think I should have drawn a map. Now, listen, Ocho, <laughs> what? Well, it was the good life that started this whole thing because I just, an idea popped into my head. We're talking about Margot Ledbetter and her snobbishness, and she's not quite scheming. No, she's not. She just reminded me of a lot of the characters from Mappa Lucia. So it just popped into my head saying, I know, Margot is originally from Tilling. Gee, have you ever seen Mappa Lucia? I haven't, I'm afraid. You have to, because I think you'd like it a lot, because it's like Planet of the Margos. Everybody's Margot, even the men. Gee, uh, don't worry about it. You don't need to see the, the, the old version, because there's a new one being made. You can oh, just watch that one. Up. All right. <laughs> I'm not giving it a chance. I'm not being fair. I'm not being open-minded. It's going to stink on ice. <laughs> but that's a very tenuous link that popped into my head. But then when I started thinking about that, I mean, you want to say that everybody with the same surname is related to everybody else? Now, I mean, we can do that, but surely we're going to then come up with situations... Well, okay, what do you do then in the case of the Ropers, to go all the way back to square one? Then? We say parallel universes, parallel events. Earth Bannister has its Ropers, Earth Tripper has its Ropers. Now, Basically, about... I'm saying, is Graham Jones, who... Where is Take a Letter Mr. Jones set? Oh, I don't think they actually put... It's got to be in precise... Sylvan's Patch. Might well be well, in Sussex. I suppose, who else well, I do we know who was... lives in Sussex who has the surname Jones? An aged butcher. <laughs> Jack Jones, Corporal Jones, <laughs> okay. is related somewhere to Graham Jones. Okay, well, we're going to get into difficulties here because if we're going to take all the same surnames and link them all together, do we apply this to people in the real world as well? Well, you've got a celebrity paradox, haven't you? Certain celebrities can't exist. Because it's one thing saying ordinary people, like nobody mentions that Jeffrey Fourmile looks like Norman Tripp. But if Norman Eshley had been on the TV the previous night, I don't think Jeffrey Fourmile would escape comment. The fact that he does means that there's no Norman Eshley in his world. Okay, but yes, but... What I'm saying is that episode of Bottle Boys we watched, for whatever reason, why did we watch that? And there's this whole thing about getting a celebrity to perform at some concert. And he says, I'm pretty sure that Bernie Winters is on my round. What would have happened if he said, I'm pretty sure Robin Asquith. Well, we don't need to get Robin Asquith because you just so happen to look and sound exactly like it. There'd be a lot more people passing themselves off, wouldn't there? <laughs> okay, what about Who advertises Curly Whirlies on Terry and June's television? It can't be Terry Scott. Does Terry Scott ever, or okay, let me rephrase that, does Terry Medford ever refer to Carly Worley's and Terry and June? Because he really should. <laughs> well, the BBC probably would have clamped down. Well, that's me? true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you've covered actors who are not necessarily celebrities, public personas in that sense. But what about, for example, does George Roper ever watch the comedians on television and see the comedian called George Roper, who isn't him. And could that lead to all manner of hilarious consequences were they ever to be in the same vicinity as one another? It's a bit northern for George, though, isn't it? He's a jelly deals man, is George. He's not a black pudding man. Well, this is true. This is true. Okay, let's throw out a possibility here. Do we think that people in a certain line of work are likely to meet one another? For example... Do we think that Izzy from Up the Garden Path 
may well have been at an NUT conference with some of the teachers from Hardwick House, for example. Yeah, that could work. Okay. Don't so, don't be apologetic. Come on, just flat out state it. Yeah. The next thing you say, say it as if it's a thing that actually happened and is a matter of record. <laughs> Go on. You know, Compo, the thing is that he was actually married, but he keeps quiet about it now because he was married to... Let me get this right. Is it... What's Felma's maiden name? Is it Braithwaite? I thought Compo's wife was Polish. No, I mean he was married to Joan Hickson. And then later on, Noel Dyson. Whatever happened to the Lycan lads. Are we to take it that Thelma is really a Simonite? Well, I, I would have thought well, that Well, the thing Compo is, is that was... Compo's been ditched by 1972 for quite some time. Because Compo was married in Last of the Summer Wine. And that's something that actually gets weirdly forgotten. Now, there's your weird clash. In Last of the Summer Wine, Compo went to Seed because his wife left him. And... He and Cleggy had never met Seymour Otterthwaite until he rolled up in 1980s Homefirth. But then in First of the Sunwine, Compo's always been like that, and they're also all friends with Seymour Otterthwaite when they're teenagers. Somebody ought to write a letter. <laughs> okay, so what about this idea about people from a certain line of work meeting? So would there be a hitmen convention at which Callan <laughs> would attend every year in Brighton? <laughs> In Brighton? Well, whatever it would be. Just, you know, one of the... No, no, I like this idea. Because I'm going to say there's a Hitman convention in Brighton and Harvey (laughs) realises that Gareth Hunt cannot get back together with Julia McKenzie's character. So he uh, he has him taken out. I don't know that Harvey's a type that would go that far. He wouldn't do it himself. No, 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 I know he wouldn't do it himself. A lot of, there's a lot of money in the health food business. Enough to be able and I'm to pretty hire. Sure cause, that, cause... I'm pretty sure that that most hitmen are actually hired by the owners of health food shops. <laughs> do you mean to say that Roy Barclough in Muller's Ruin at one point considers getting... That's why there man? wasn't a second series, because all of his problems were solved when he had his mother whacked. <laughs> yes, this could happen. So are there any other hitmen? Okay, oh, Kenneth Cope, just mentioned him in yes. George and Mildred the movie. He's there at the convention. Who else have we got? Walter Matto and Buddy Buddy. He'll be there. <laughs> I can't think of many comedy hitmen. No, I can't think of any. <laughs> well, hang on. Callan isn't a comedy hitman. Yeah, but again, he? he works for the Secret Services. He's more likely to have met Edgar Briggs. Are you allowing Callan into a comedy hitman convention purely because he made the Edward Woodward hour? Now, there's your definite tie between Detroit, because we know in the Edward Woodward, there was a sketch, Callan meets Father Dear Father. That's one of the rare occasions of characters from different shows interacting quite so directly on screen. Okay. Of course, that's right. Last week, I couldn't remember the detectives at all, but yes, that's right. You said there was Bergerac, Pian and the detectives. Okay. And, and the Paradise Club. If you want people with jobs that might have caused them to meet... Terry Medford sells fire extinguishers, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Fire extinguishers contain valves. I'm thinking at some point, Sir Dennis sent him to have a word with the people at Mole Valley Valves, and Terry Medford met Martin Bryce. Okay. <laughs> or maybe he didn't. Maybe what happened... You haven't seen the last episode, have you, Mooncat? But it, it's okay, this isn't a big spoiler. Maybe Sir Dennis switched his allegiance from Lee Valley Valves to Mole Valley Valves, and that's what caused... 
the eventual merger between mole valley valves and Lee valley valves. <laughs> well, I do no, I do have a little economic theory that ties two two shows together. <laughs> Odd man out. The rock business is not doing well, is it? That's right. The decline started post-war, yes? I'm going to say that the war was a direct result because in Dad's Army, the novelty rock emporium is closed <laughs> and they keep having occasional meetings there. I think it was the closure of the Warmington novelty rock emporium <laughs> that caused that, that particular rock business to start going downhill. Odd man out, Dad's Army, they're tied. But hang on a second, because I thought we'd established earlier on that thanks to the actions of Gary Sparrow, Dad's Army doesn't exist. No, Dad's Army doesn't exist as a television program, but it exists as events that really happen. real life. Yeah, when Gary Sparrow is referring to Dad's Army, he's referring to a very cruel world (laughs) where somebody made a television show called Dad's Army making fun of this real man who really existed (laughs) and who was let down by the poor quality of a different universe's NHS and therefore was not alive (laughs) to prevent himself being mocked every week on BBC television. Okay. Somebody found his war diaries and (laughs) thought, he looks ridiculous, let's make fun of him. Now, okay, I have a concern here because does that mean, for example, that Redfors Potter, newly retired from his mint factory empire, could have seen an episode of Dad's Army and at one point Eileen would have said to him he's remarkably like you. No, you know. no she wouldn't because in that universe Redvus Potter looked like Robin Bailey. <laughs> <laughs> this is the gift that keeps on giving. Okay, hang on a second. Do you have any other suggestions you've got in front of you there for your comedy map? Why is Del Boy's gear so rubbish? I have an explanation. Some of the stuff he sells is just beyond shaky. It's just poor. It's just, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. This is surplus stock from Grot, the big supermarket chain of the 70s owned by Reginald Perrin. I mean, it only fools are tied to Goodnight Sweetheart. So we've got Goodnight Sweetheart and Reginald Perrin tied together. Now, hang on. We've got to come up with some way that... How, how is Dale getting hold of this ex-Grot stock? Well, it's not the 70s anymore. They overproduced... Probably some of it's being pinched from warehouses, but some of it's just being offloaded cheap. That briefcases works. that open when they're not supposed to, briefcases that stay closed forever. If you want to just have like a, a wild speculation, I also think that Sunshine Desserts probably later got sold off to Cavendish Foods. Yeah, that definitely could work. Ah, no, okay. Ocho, you've sent me something. You sent here a comedy map. I sent you I my map. On my screen. <laughs> we have to okay. have maps if we're going to do this properly. Okay, so we're saying that this is... Because there was an Alan so, Wicker Some of these fronted, links are, t- are stronger than others. There was an Alan Wicker fronted series a few years by the comedy map of Britain, was it not? But I don't remember him using this particular map. It would have been interesting if he had. Because this here is... Let's see now. All right, so good, there's Goodnight Sweetheart at the top. So if you want to sketch this map out, listeners, so you've got a copy of it in front of you. Goodnight Sweetheart is at the top. Then, in grey, we've got a link to Snakes and Ladders. And I can't read the writing there, but I'm presuming based upon what you've Gary said. Gary prevents this future. Right, okay then. Now we've got a link here that Gary prevents Dad's Army from happening. The TV series. He prevents it being made into a TV series, making fun of real people. He prevents... Was it? Did you say Series 2 of the Creatives? Series 2 of the Creatives, yes. Now, what's this link here between... The creatives and take letter messaging. Well, it just so happens that Jack Doherty's character is married to a mad Italian. 
okay. who's insanely jealous and causes a lot of trouble. I'm saying that <laughs> the reason that Maria in Take a Letter Mr. Jones is working for Mr. Warner is to make enough money to bring her daughter Tanya across to the UK, where maybe she'll marry a Scottish advertising executive one day. <laughs> now you've got Take a Letter Mr. Jones, Graham is related to Jack Jones, we've got that. Dad's Army linked to Odd Man Now, that was a rock factory, okay. Now, if we go back up to the top for a second, Goodnight Sweetheart linked with Only Fools, obviously, because Gary's bad was Freddy the Frog. Only Fools linked with Reginald Perrin, because Del Boy has bought the ex-Grot stock. Now, you've got a link here from Reginald Perrin to To the Manor Born. Yeah. Cavendish Foods buys out Sunshine Desserts. Okay. So that's where that one stops. On its own, on a little island here, or westward, Yeah, we I never have... tied that one up got a link here between Porridge and Happy Ever After. Because it's Terry and June Fletcher in Happy Ever After, and they, I thought I think that maybe we could argue. If we're going to let Jack and Graham Jones be related, I'm going to say that Terry and June Fletcher don't like to talk about Cousin Norman, because he's a bit of a bad one. <laughs> now, again, if we go then southeast direction, Map and Lucia is here, and that's got a couple of links. So first of all, Map and Lucia has got a link with Are You Being Served? Again, it was just a surname thing. I'm going to say that Dick Lucas <laughs> is somewhere in his family tree related to Philip and Emmeline Lucas of Map and Lucia. Are we saying that Howard Bannister, who runs the supermarket Cobbs in Canada, is in some way related to Dick Lucas? What, because his surname is the same as the surname <laughs> of the actor who plays him? <laughs> <laughs> and therefore he's also I think a dimensional wall <laughs> collapsed there <laughs> he's also related to that fella in the dustbin men and white watchdogs and last of some of and lots of other things as well okay now are you being served has got a link with metal mickey again it's a name thing oh is this wilberforce i'm thinking yeah wilberforce humphreys was actually named after his mother's maiden name that therefore ties him to the wilberforce family this means that operational sentient sapient robots are actually real in the Are You Being Served universe, and and therefore all the others. Okay, and Map and Lucia is linked with the good Well, line. the original one, I, I'd said I'd said that I figured Margot was from Tilling. And then I changed my mind. I'm going to say that she's not from Tilling. She aspired to be from Tilling. She'd visited it a few times because she I'm going to say she's from Sussex, but she's from a different Sussex town. She hasn't got the scheming element of, of the Tillingites. I'm going to say smaller town in Sussex on the coast, but still known for its snobbishness. Margot's actually from Walmington. Okay. Okay, I can go with that, but how does then that link with the other one? Well, anytime we try and tie some somebody played by the same actor, we should notice just similarities in temperament. Yeah. So you can't necessarily say that Dick Lucas is definitely related to Heavy Breathing from the Dustbin Men, just because they're both played by Trevor Bannister. You have to argue it. But if, if we're going to say that there's a certain similarity in temperament, then you could. Like we're saying, Keith Barron played Squire Haggard and David Pierce, and they're both a bit rakish. Martin Bryce, Ralph Tanner from the other one, and Tom Good. A <laughs> little bit of overconfidence and pomposity sometimes. They're cousins. Well, Esmond and Lobby said that or did they say, or has it been speculated? I know Richard Bryars has said it, that towards the end of The Good Life, Tom started to become a bit of a dry run for Martin Bryce. Just occasionally he digs his heels in. Now, episode you haven't seen yet, Mooncat, but there is an episode where things just start going right for Martin, and he gets overconfident, and he starts acting like Ralph in the other one. 
So I'm going to say those guys are related. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I'd go with that. So, G, what is your overall impression? You've heard Ocho argue his case, but what do you think of Ocho's proposed comedy map? He's clearly put a lot of effort into it, and there are some very good suggestions put forward. So, yeah, I'm for it. We're going to pin this comedy map to the wall, and then I think that we will come back to this in a future episode, having scribbled down a few possibilities for the comedy map, and also... We've got 14 like... shows roughly linked. I thought you were going to say, I've got 14 more ideas written down here. <laughs> no, we've got 14 shows generally linked on the map, and then we've got other stuff. Oh, but there was one thing I forgot to say to solve part of the celebrity paradox. So, there don't seem to be quite as many celebrities. We've worked out it's a smaller population because it's a smaller gene pool. I think it's a smaller talent pool. The biggest comedy star, any sitcom... <laughs> In sitcom world, biggest comedy star is Spike Dixon, former Maplin's yellow coat. He made it. <laughs> Hang on a second. What about Richie Rich? 1986, as it was made. Spoiler alert. At the end of Phil Fritch and Catflap, with the assistance of newspaper proprietor Dingo Walker, he manages to blacken the name of everyone else in show business so that he is, in effect, the only person on television. He is the only celebrity. Did he forget to blacken Spike's name and suddenly he's got a rival? No, we just have to push him to one earth or the other. That's where the parallel... I said it's a necessity. It okay, cleans so Spike, up and explains so much. So does Spike belong in either the pre or post Sparrow universe? Are we referring to Sparrow as basically like BCAD, before and after Sparrow? So if we say Richie is a less pleasant character, he's a bit edgier, then he is written out. Of existence by Gary Sparrow's actions. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, as long as we've got and the the gap left is taken by Spike Dixon. Okay. Is he related to Reginald Dixon, the organist? Let's not go crazy. We're doing a map of fictional things that happen. We're not doing genealogy. <laughs> Did you just say let's not go crazy with this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's not go. Cr- Come on. Are you ignoring the previous hour and a half? <laughs> that was all perfectly sensible, and everybody has that conversation every day. And yet, so then when I say, is he related to somebody else with the same surname, now you're just taking the piss. Well, that's because you're trying to link people who, in our world with sitcom world. Yeah, maybe that is taking it too far. Okay, so G, as adjudicator here... Do you, do you, want, you... That to, do you want characters from sitcom world to spill into our universe? You turn on your TV and Ted Bovis leaps out of the screen <laughs> and starts telling you what the first rule of comedy is. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe you do, but... I think quite lots of people would benefit well, okay, uh, from here's, that. here's an example. You leave on your TV, you, you go to bed one night and you've accidentally left on your TV and you wake up the, the morning and Jack from On the Buses has eaten your breakfast. Did I not say to yourself on a podcast a few weeks back that there was a specific set of circumstances that would have led me to follow Charles Hawtrey into the gents when he was looking for Kenneth Williams. Oh no, when he was looking for Sid James, I beg your pardon. And you said, who wouldn't do that? And I had to admit, yes, absolutely. If I knew that was taking place right now, Charles Hawtrey with a big comedy beard on and a big long Mac was chasing after Sid James and the local gents. Of course I'd be down there. So, to answer your question, yes. I'd love it if Jack suddenly turned up and started him a shredded wheat. I think it was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, but you wait. You wait a few weeks and he's alienated you from your family and friends. Yeah, which is going to happen, yeah. And I think that I would then probably be leaving the Dad's Army DVDs on on a regular basis, hoping that Hodges was going to fall through the screen. <laughs> <laughs> and the two of them can just fight it out between them. 
So, G, are you giving your seal of approval to the proposed comedy map as it stands? I definitely am, yes. And is there anything at all... I was going to say, is there anything at all that we've said today that made any sense? Is there <laughs> anything at all that we've said that you would take issue with? Is there anything you think breaks the laws of the sitcom universe? Well, it's quite confusing to actually get what the sitcom laws are, <laughs> really, after that. But no, I think everything that's been said could possibly work. Okay, well, what we're going to do, Ocho, is we're going to now... We're going to put this on the wall. We're going to put the comedy map on the wall, and we will come back to this in the future sitcom club. We all both have proposals using the comedy map as our starting point. And what we might do before we have that second podcast we may actually publish the comedy map on sitcomclub.com and invite listeners to interject invite listeners to have a gander at it and then send in their suggestions for additions to the comedy map and we'll do that in a few months time so we'll say we'll come back to it in the autumn and we'll give you plenty of warning dear listener before we're going to do that so you have plenty of time to have a look at the map and then send in your suggestions that would be good I would like to see this turn into a huge, improper, enormous, messy version of comedy connections in which the lines at first sort of tie up with one another, but eventually they just sort of aimlessly go off in all manner of directions and take over the entire four walls of the it's room. It's kind of going that way already, so that could easily be done. Ocho, as ever, you thank you for you your... You never solved our central mystery. Central mystery? Who is Joe from Man About the House? Because she's so vaguely sketched in, we, we. I'm going to tweet Sally Thompson. Sally Thompson's on Twitter. I'm going to tweet Sally Thompson. I'm going to ask her, does she know if Joe has a surname or if there was ever a surname proposed for her? Even the. And we've got to give it kudos. We, we've been referring to this throughout the whole podcast. I'm not sure if it's still in print, but. The Radio Times Guide to TV Comedy. I think there's three editions of it in total by Mark Lewison. And it is it is the definitive reference book when it comes to not just sitcoms, but also sketch shows and so on. So if you can get hold of a copy of it, then do so. It's a huge, big, weighty tome. But even that, even the Radio Times Guide to Comedy doesn't have a surname for Joe. We're just going to have to create one for her. Maybe we'll do that as a competition. If Sally Thompson replies, Joe doesn't have a surname, we'll do that as a sitcom club podcast competition will ask listeners to tweet us with a suggested surname and then if she's up for it then we'll ask Sally Thompson to choose her preferred surname how about that then okay and if she isn't up for it then all of this will be then be cut from the podcast so if you're hearing this it means it's 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 a goer right okay so Ocho as ever thank you very much for your assistance today you're welcome and G thank you very much indeed for bringing some semblance of sanity to the podcast <laughs> For the first time, I suspect. (laughs) Thank you very much for having me. And we will be with you again this time next week on The Sitcom Club.